All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're about to pray together because we're about to prepare our hearts to be addressed by God from His Word. And so let's pray and let's ask for God's help this morning to hear His Word from Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you today for revealing the glory of Christ to us, Lord. That you are the treasure. Lord, there's nothing that can compare to you. You are the one who died for us. You are the one who washed us from our sins in His own blood, and yet You're the worthy one of heaven. Lord, we just sang to You that You are the one who overpowered death. Lord, Lord Jesus, You stripped the King of terrors from His power. Lord, You showed that You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And there's nothing more powerful than You. And God, we long for the day when we sing your praise, Lord Jesus, with all the saints of all the nations, from every tribe, from every tongue. That you would receive praise that is due your name from your bride that you chose for yourself before the foundation of the world. Lord, thank you for this glimpse of eternity, God, that you gave us this morning to stand in your presence and to hallow your name, Lord. God, we come now to your word and we pray that you would address us today. Lord, your word says, Jesus, that the scepter shall not depart from you or the ruler's staff from between your feet until tribute is brought to you. And to you, Lord Jesus, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Lord Jesus, we pray today that you would lift up that ruler's staff that kingly scepter, and that you would rule us today by your word. From the right hand of the Father, that you would send out a word and cause obedience today. Stir it up in our hearts, Lord. Make yourself known in this place, Lord Jesus, as King. King in every way. King over every heart, Lord. God, our trust is in you. Lord, teach us to follow you. You tell us that we were brought forth by the word of truth and that we're sanctified by your truth. Lord, we pray that you would send out your word, send out your light, send out your truth, and that it would bring us to your holy hill this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we say this periodically as we prepare to read God's word together. That this is the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour. Why? Because this is the only thing that I'm about to say that has no error in it. And the origin of these words is not man, but God. This is what we confess as the church. That all scripture is breathed out by God. So let's read God's word together this morning. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Enter 
by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is God's word to us as a local church this morning. And with these words in Matthew 7, 13, Jesus begins to call us to respond to the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just mention a few things before we dive into this text together. I say he begins to call us to respond with these words because he actually calls us to respond four times to the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to do it as chapter 7 closes. You're going to get four different calls from the Lord Jesus to respond to his teaching. This is the first. And so I want us to remember what the Sermon on the Mount is and who the Sermon on the Mount comes from. It comes to us from the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is teaching us about the Kingdom of Heaven. Specifically, Jesus in Matthew 5-7 through has revealed to us the righteousness that's required to enter in, not to this Kingdom of Men, but into the Kingdom of God. There's a righteous standard. Matthew 5 verse 20. In these chapters, he begins to reveal this righteous standard. And as we come to a close, the Lord Jesus calls us to respond to this teaching. In other words, he doesn't just tell us what it is like this big you know, newspaper announcement, information dump. He, he looks at us and addresses us. You must respond. He calls us to respond to his teaching. His call here is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Enter the narrow gate. Now, I'll mention this. uh, At the very beginning and the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find that the audience that Jesus addresses is a mixed crowd. The primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount is the disciples, but at the very beginning and the very end, you have these others that are gathered around the fringes, you could say, hearing Jesus' teaching. And those are called the crowds. It's kind of like a church service today. You have disciples and believers all over the room. We're the church. We belong to Jesus. But not everybody in here belongs to Jesus. There's also the crowds. There's this mixed audience. And Jesus calls to all, enter the kingdom. Don't just hear about it. Don't just learn about it. Respond to Jesus' teaching. His words in verses 13 and 14 are full of figurative language. Everything, and you need to learn this, everything in the Bible is not literal. You have to learn to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. Jesus is using a metaphor here. It's not a literal gate, and it's not a literal path. It stands for something else. What does it stand for? These words describe life as a journey. That you begin, that you progress, and that you end. The gates describe the beginning of the journey, and the path describes the progress of your life. And so this metaphor describes this pilgrimage. John Bunyan captures this well in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. The very first line, as I was walking through the wilderness of this world, that's the idea here. 
Catch the metaphor, understand the language. Jesus is referring to two different kinds of pilgrims on two different kinds of journeys. And he places these two pilgrimages in sharp contrast to one another. I want you to notice this. There are two gates. There are two paths. There are two crowds. And there are two destinations. We have this sharp contrast. One is not like the other. And there's two, not three. And what are these contrasts meant to accomplish? They're meant to press us to this decision. you got to go one way or the other. As the Sermon on the Mount comes to a close, it's like Jesus is bringing us to this fork in the road. Which way are you going to go? There's not five routes in front of you. There's two. You're going to go left. You're going to go right. Two ways to live. Now, if you've been listening to the, sermon, to, to the Sermon on the Mount over the last several months as we've been coming through as a local church, you know this is not the first time Jesus has done this. That He's brought our life into this sharp contrast. That He's taken you know, all the complexities of life, all the layers to it, and He boils it down to this simple two-sided choice. You're either going to go one way or the other. This is running all through the Sermon on the Mount. These two ways to live. Back in chapter 5, we, we read about those two righteousnesses. You're going to be like the, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees, that hypocritical righteousness. Or you're going to have the true righteousness of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Running through the Sermon on the Mount, you have two doctrines, two devotions. You're going to... You're going to uh, handle the word of God like the hypocrites? You're going to seek God uh, for the praise of men? Are you going to handle the word of God and fulfill the righteous requirements of the kingdom and seek the Father who is in the secret place? There's two ways to live all through the Sermon on the Mount. There's two treasures. Those who have their treasure on earth, those who have their treasure in heaven, there are two masters, there are those who serve God, there are those who serve money, there are two seekers in the world, and only two seekers, those who seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everybody else who seeks all the other stuff. You see, at the end of the day, you boil it down, and there's two ways to live, there's two paths to go, and Jesus didn't make this up. The Old Testament also boils down life at the end of the day to two options, two and only two. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses sets these two options before the people of God. Listen to it. He says, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 1, if you remember Psalm 1, we have two categories of people in Psalm 1. Those who perish and those who prosper in Psalm 1. Those who walk in the counsel of the wicked and those who meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. The two ways to live. Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 8 says this, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. There's a fork in the road and you can go the way of life 
or you can go the way of death, but you can't go anywhere else. You have to go one or the other. This is a clarifying word in a pluralistic culture where there's supposedly all these different ways to live and all these different versions of truth. There's truth and everything else is, is error. And this is a really important concept for us to grab. Uh, we are the evangelist in this world. We are the salt and the light in this world. And this is what we have to, we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And we have to put this contrast before uh, those who don't know Christ. You, you, you got two choices. You got two ways to live here. The way of life and the way of death. And this takes boldness to announce this. I don't know if you ever uh, come up against this. You know, it, it ought to be like this. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't write the mail. I just deliver the mail. It ought to be like that, that we don't make this stuff up. We just, we just say what God says. But you know what? The messengers have always been hated. Old Testament and New Testament. And why in the world would the messengers be hated? Because we set before them the way of life and the way of death. We follow in the footsteps of of Jesus. So you're either in one camp or the other. You're either for Christ or against Christ. This is what he's doing as the Sermon on the Mount closes. He's like wisdom crying out in the streets, exhorting us choose life. Choose life. Don't go the path of death. Enter the narrow gate. That, that, that word enter is a command from Jesus. That's a command that ought to be obeyed. It'll either be obeyed or disobeyed. And that command to enter the gate is actually a call to be converted. That's what the metaphor means. This is a call. Be saved. Be converted. Enter the narrow gate. This is a command to salvation. A call to salvation. That word enter is used two other times in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.20 Matthew 7, 24, and both of those other instances, the phrase is this, enter the kingdom of heaven. To enter the narrow gate in 7, 13 is to enter the kingdom of heaven, to begin the Christian life, to be saved, and to walk the narrow path is to continue to do the words of Jesus, to be sanctified, to manifest the righteousness that he's called us to in the Sermon on the Mount. This stuff is connected. This is the conclusion to everything you've been hearing since Matthew 5, verse 20. And so these words, Jesus calls us to three things, to begin the Christian life, to continue the Christian life, and to complete the Christian life. And we're going to walk through this passage under those three headings. Begin the Christian life, continue the Christian life and complete the Christian life. And we'll start with that first word, gate. Jesus starts with the gate. Specifically, the narrow gate. And he puts this in sharp contrast to the broad gate. What does this mean? What's the imagery here? What picture is Jesus painting for us? Remember, this is a pilgrim metaphor. A traveler's journey. And the gate is where you begin the journey. But what about the narrowness of the gate? 
The narrowness of the gate determines what you can bring in and what you leave behind. Understand the metaphor. If you go through a narrow gate, you can't bring your luggage with you because there's no room. You can't get it in. But if you go through a broad gate, you can take in whatever you want. Understand the metaphor. In the narrow gate, you can't bring your stuff with you. In the broad gate, you can bring in whatever you want. I was thinking about uh, this. Um, sometimes you see these in, in an airport. And all I know to call them is a spinny thing. Okay, And you'll go through these lines and sometimes you'll have to go through a spinny thing. And you go through and your waist turns it and you can only go through one person at a time. And you can't go through side by side because it's, it's restricted. You can't just... You know, have a bunch of stuff and go through the thing by yourself. You got to sit your stuff on the conveyor belt and go through. And I was asking, <laughs> I was asking my my uh, wife, my my kids were hearing me. What do you call that spinny thing? And uh, one of my kids said, you know that Bass Pro Shop thing. You know that thing at Bass Pro Shop where you go through that thing and it turns. That's exactly right. That's the narrow gate. If it's narrow, it determines what you can bring into it. This is the imagery. That Jesus is calling us to enter the narrow gate. This is how the Christian life begins. There's an entry point. Let me say that again. There is an entry point to the Christian life. That means that you have not always been a Christian. Let me say that again. The Christian life has a beginning. It has an entry point. There's a, there's a moment in time where you start the journey. And so if you ask someone, when did you become a Christian? And they say, I've always been a Christian. There's something crossed up here. They don't understand. No, no, no. Jesus says, enter the narrow gate. It's got to have a beginning. You've got to come into the kingdom. You definitely weren't born a Christian. Christians must be born again. You were born into sin. So I want you to think this morning, examine yourself. Has this happened to you? Has the beginning of the Christian life happened to you? Have you began your journey with Jesus Christ? Have you started off with him? Have you entered the narrow gate? Understand that you were, you were automatically born on the other path. This is the doctrine of original sin. You need to go back and study this. You need to be settled on this. You didn't become a sinner at some point in time. You were born in sin. King David said, I was brought forth in, in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. From the moment of conception, you were a sinner. You automatically, by coming into this world as a member of the fallen human race, you were born on the broad path. You already came through the broad gate thanks to your first father, Adam. You were joined to him in his sin. And from birth, we continue this journey onto this city that Jesus calls destruction in this passage. You are automatically on the broad path by nature. You only get on the narrow path by grace. You're born on the broad path. You're born again on the narrow path. Isaiah 53 says it this way. 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. Listen. 
to his own way. That's who you are by nature. You live your own way. You do your own thing. You follow your heart. You do what's right in your own eyes. That's who you are by nature. You do you. You live your way. You are your own Lord. But with these words, enter the narrow gate. Jesus is calling all of us to make a decisive break. You've got to turn away from that stuff. A radical change in direction. You've got to enter into the narrow gate. You've got to turn. This is a call to be saved. And this call comes with a reminder to us. It's not just come. It comes with the reminder that the gate is narrow. You can't bring all your stuff with you. There's no room for your luggage. You got to leave some stuff if you want to follow Christ. And the Bible, it describes what we must drop, what we must turn away from in many different ways. Here's a few. You got to turn your back on the world. You got to be crucified to the world and all of its ways and all of its worldliness. Most of all, you got to leave your sin. You have sworn allegiance to sin from the moment you were conceived, but you got to swear allegiance to Jesus. You got to come through the narrow gate. This is said over and over again in the New Testament with the words repent and believe the gospel. You got to turn away to turn to Jesus. You got to drop it and you got to come through the narrow gate. Sometimes repentance and the call to salvation is wrongly explained in this way of, oh, no, this is what Jesus tells us to do after we're already Christians. And so when if Jesus, you know, is standing before a bunch of lost people, Jesus just says, I'm the savior. If you don't want to go to hell uh, everybody, uh, bow your head, close your eyes, and pray after me. And then whoever responds to that message, then you tell them to deny themselves. Then you tell them to repent. Jesus has got to become your Savior, and then later on down the line, Jesus becomes your Lord. You believe first, and then you repent later. Maybe two months later, maybe two years later, maybe 20 years later. And I want, you, I, want, I want to show you how backwards this is. What does the Lord Jesus say when massive crowds gather before him? Turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples. I right, get that picture in your head, right? All the crowds gathered before Jesus. Nobody has ever loved a soul like Jesus Christ. He knows they're heading one of two ways. And what does he say? What does he say? Mark chapter 8 verse 34. Close your eyes. Bow your head. And pray after me. Not what he says, is it? What does Jesus say? Let's read it together. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I want you to be so convinced from the word of God. That's a call to salvation. 
That's a call to begin the Christian life. Now, we revisit that. Luke's version of this command says we do this daily. We take up our cross daily and follow him. But listen, this is how you begin the Christian life. As you come through the narrow gate, you repent, you deny yourself, you take up the cross. That's an instrument of death. The old man is crucified and now we follow Jesus Christ as Lord. One of the differences between true and false evangelism is false evangelism says this. You can have Jesus and keep your sin. Jesus is the opposite. He says, you want me? Come through the narrow gate. you got to come through the narrow gate. You have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he uttered these famous words. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To come to Jesus Christ is to die to self and get a whole new life in him. I want to speak for a moment to those who are around the things of God so often and, are, and, and you're not saved and you're not converted. And I want you to think about how this passage can help you, especially the children of Grace Community Church, the, especially the older children that have heard the gospel, heard the word for many years. I want, I want you to be convinced. I want you to see from this passage what Jesus calls you to. He says, enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. And what does this mean? It means it's not good enough, it's not sufficient to think good thoughts of Jesus. Do you, do you think Jesus is good? Yes, I think Jesus is good. It's insufficient to think good thoughts of Jesus Christ. You have to enter the gate. You have to follow Jesus. Listen, it's not sufficient if you, if you admire Him, if you have an admiration for Jesus, you think He's good, you think His teaching is right, you admire Him. Listen, look, look just, just read this. Read it again, you know, right now. Read it when you get home. Jesus did not say, do you admire me? He didn't say that. He, he didn't say, do you think my teaching is right? He said, follow me. He said, he said, enter the narrow gate. You have to come after Christ. You can't just think good thoughts about him. You've got to follow him. You've got to deny yourself, drop your sin, and follow the Lord Jesus. We must come to Christ with repentance and faith. This is the beginning of the Christian life. This is how we start the journey to the, to the city called eternal life. There's a famous line in a hymn we sing that describes this empty handed coming to Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The narrow gate. You're not trying to smuggle in your sins. You're not trying to smuggle in your own righteousness. You drop it all and you come after Jesus. This is so important that you cannot allow anything in this world to get in the way from you coming to Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. You need to respond to Jesus' teaching. There's a famous example of this in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Very early in the first chapter, the, the pilgrim's name is Christian. 
and this burden of sin has been placed upon his back. And in this metaphor, this stands for the conviction. The conviction of sin is all over him. He's lost joy. He's in turmoil of soul. He knows he's unclean before a holy God. He fears the judgment of God and he wants to be saved. And he comes across this man named Evangelist. And Evangelist points him to this gate where he can find salvation. If he can enter through the gate of the wall of salvation. And as as he prepares to leave and to make the journey to the gate of salvation, there are several people that he runs across that try to talk him out of it. Try to talk him out of it. There's a character named Obstinate, a character named Pliable in Bunyan's story. But most of all, his own family, his wife and his children begin to plead with him, don't go, it's dangerous, we need you here. And there's a moment, and this is a work of the Spirit of God, this is a kind of urgency that you need to have with your own soul, where Christian puts his fingers in his ears, and he runs away from his own family screaming, life, life, eternal life. And he went to the only place that he knew that the burden could be removed the gate of salvation we must begin the christian life with jesus not only does jesus mention a gate he also mentions a way and again he contrasts it with the broad way once we enter the gate we have to continue with christ the the gate is where you begin the way is the journey We have to continue to follow Jesus as Lord. In the original, this hard way that's contrasted with the broad way, it's literally the compressed way. Some versions translate both the gate and the way as narrow. It's the compressed way. And the picture here is this narrow, constricted footpath that we must walk down. On the broad way, there's plenty of room. On the narrow way, it's constricted. The reference here is, you know, there are a lot of things that are tolerated on the broad way. The broad way, if you want diversity, Broadway's the way to go. If you want tolerance, the broad way is the way to go. But the narrow path has boundaries. They're tightly defined by the Word of God. The narrow path has been constricted by the Scriptures. You can't just live any way you want on the narrow path. It's been defined for us in the Word of God. On the broad path, you can believe whatever you want. You can live however you want on the broad path. Even about Jesus, you can believe whatever you want about Jesus on the broad path. The narrow path is different. There are doctrines to be believed. False doctrines to be rejected. There are commandments to be obeyed on the narrow path. There are boundaries that we have to stay within. It's a path of obedience. A path of faithfulness to Jesus. Now, this is a needed word because the last thing some Christians Uh, would hate to be known for is is their narrowness. I mean, some people lose sleep at night thinking, what if they think I'm narrow? What if they think I'm intolerant? And this should help you so much that Jesus says the path of life is what? It's narrow, it's constricted. 
It's not a free-for-all. Believe what you want to believe and do what you want to do. It's a constricted path by the Word of God. The way to life is narrow. The Christian life is narrow. It's not tolerant. It's, it's the most intolerant religion that has ever you know, uh, 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 existed on the face of the earth. There's one way and no other way. The narrowness of the path. This is the path that belongs to the Lord. The constricted path, the narrow path, is the path that belongs to Jesus. The Bible describes this path in many ways. gives it several names. Matthew 3 calls it the way of the Lord. Acts 2 calls it the way of life. Acts 16, the way of salvation. Romans 3, the way of peace. Roman, uh, Acts chapter, uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 10, the new and living way opened for us by Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2, the way of truth, the way of righteousness. You get the idea. The way of salvation, the way that belongs to God, pleases God. Many times, especially in the Old Testament, the Bible commands us, walk in God's ways. Walk in the way of the Lord. So we're not only to start this pilgrim journey and repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ, we are to continue on with Christ on this path marked out for us by the word of God. Other places translate this word compressed as hard. And as we already mentioned, that's how the ESV translates the word in verse 14. And so the constricted path is hard. It's hard because it's narrow. It's not broad. It's not wide open. It's not do whatever, do whatever you want. It's constricted. That means the path is difficult. And the sooner you know that as a Christian, the better. That there's, there, there are tribulations and suffering in the Christian life. The Christian life is not meant to be easy. Jesus says in this passage, he says, it's hard. From beginning to end, the Christian life is a fight. Paul calls it the fight of faith. You're in a war to keep faith in Jesus Christ. You're in a war to continue to cling to Jesus Christ. And that, that warfare uh, imagery, it carries all the way through from beginning to end. And in other words, you know, we could talk about how many vacation days do you get at your job? You know? But there are no vacation days to the Christian life. You're in a war every single day. You can't take a spiritual vacation. Why? Because you're in a war. The fight of faith, beginning to end. One of the parables that Jesus tells, Mark 8, Luke 8, the parable of, sorry, Mark 4, Luke 8, the parable of the four soils. It talks about four different responses to the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus teaches us and one of these responses about the rocky soil. And in the rocky soil, he paints this picture of someone who immediately receives the gospel with joy. They heard the message of sin forgiven. They heard the message of the crucified Christ. And they loved it. And they're joyful. And Jesus says, but they're rocky soil. There's no depth to their profession of faith. Jesus goes on to tell us that suffering comes into this person's life. And just like the sun scorches plants to where there's nothing left that have no depth, suffering reveals 
this person as a false convert. They, suffering is the trigger that causes this person to leave the narrow path and jump back on the broad and easy path that leads to destruction. We must continue with Christ to be saved. You must continue with Jesus to be saved. All the promises, go back and check me on this. When Jesus writes those letters to the churches in Revelation, He makes promises to them. And every one of those promises is prefaced by these words. To the one who conquers, fill in the blank. The promises that Jesus makes to the churches are to those who conquer, not to those who quit. You must endure with Christ. This is the doctrine of perseverance. In the same way we start, faith in Christ, by the grace of God, we have to continue. We have to continue to trust, continue to cling to Jesus. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Think about how much... You know, uh, this obliterates some versions of evangelism. Think about that. It's not, you know, to the one who prays the prayer. No matter what happens in your life after this, you'll be saved. That's not what Jesus says. He says you got to start this journey clinging to him. And you start it by faith through, through grace, by, by grace through faith. And you finish it by grace through faith. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And so I want to exhort you this morning, continue to follow Jesus. Continue down the narrow path. Now, what in the world would make us turn our backs on Jesus? He tells us here, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. There are going to be things that happen to you that, you, that you, everything in you says, I don't want this. But we have to persevere. We have to continue to follow Him. We're not fair-weather Christians. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is we follow Him when things are going good and we turn our back on Him when things are going bad. He died for us. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. We were destined for hell and wrath. And He saved us by grace. We cannot turn our back on Jesus Christ. We have to persevere to the end. I want to correct a few you know, potential misunderstandings here. So I'll just mention a few bullet points. The path is hard, plain sense of the passage, but don't misunderstand it. It's also good. In other words, you could say it like this, that you'll never taste joy that compares to the joy of following Jesus. This is what you were made to do, is to obey and to follow Jesus. In Jesus' presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a hard path, but it's good. It's good. There's suffering, but there's also joy. And in this same gospel, the same, the same teacher, the Lord Jesus, that tells us the way is hard, just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 11, He tells us that His burden is easy. And his yoke is light. And, and, and the picture there is we're not by ourselves on this narrow path. He's with us. We're yoked up to Jesus. He's going to help us. He's going to lift our burdens. He's going to carry our burdens. He's going to enable us to live the Christian life. In one sense, it's hard. In another sense, it's good. 
The narrow path is a path of obedience, no doubt. But don't misunderstand that it's a path of perfection. It's not. Every pilgrim on the narrow path, by definition of being on the path, has not yet arrived at the journey, at the destination. They're not there yet. They're still pressing on. And even the blessed ones, what Jesus Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The Christian life in this world is a life of continual hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that doesn't go away until we see His face in glory. And so if we fall as Christians following Christ, if we fall on on the narrow path, don't despair about it. Don't despair about it. Confess your sin to Christ. And the Bible promises that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a path of obedience, but not a path of perfection. You're going to still need the mercy and grace of Christ all the way down this journey until you see His face. And lastly, the narrow path is not supposed to be an isolated path. In other words, with all this imagery of dropping your stuff, leaving everything behind, God does not intend for you to make this journey on your own. In one sense, you leave everything. In another sense, you have traveling partners. Notice the two crowds in this passage. Jesus refers to them as the many and the few. The many, that's the crowds on the broad path, but the few are the crowds on the narrow path. The few in this passage is the church. That's the holy brothers and sisters, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the bride of Jesus Christ, those who love and follow Jesus. We get to walk down the narrow path with brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's a good gift from God. That's a good gift. In this hard journey, we have Christian fellowship. And that's one of the foretastes of heaven, is Christian fellowship as we journey down the narrow path. Yes, it's hard, but don't forget that it's also good. Finally, Jesus comes to two destinations in this passage. He tells us that one path ends in life, And the other path ends in destruction. The whole point of traveling is to get to your destination. Think of how nonsensical it is if you tell someone, hey, me and my my family, you know, went on a trip last week. Oh, where'd you go? Oh, we went nowhere. We just, you know, just perpetually traveled and then then came back. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the man who does not consider his destination is a fool. Think about that. You are wandering through the wilderness of this world right now. No exceptions. Consider your latter end. Consider where the path is taking you. Jesus says one of two places, life or destruction. There's a warning here. There's a warning here. And this is applicable to every single one of us in this room. Why? Because in a hundred years, in 100 years, almost every single person in this room will inhabit eternity. Consider your latter end. Be wise. 
Jesus warns us here that any other path besides the narrow path of following Jesus ends in eternal destruction. In other words, Jesus says the dying breath of an unbeliever will be a horrifying entrance into an eternity without hope, without any hope. Only destruction and no life. The eternal city of destruction is hell. This is a reference to hell. A metaphor for hell. That there is a city. That this broad path is pressing and pushing the many towards. And it's the city of destruction. Hell itself. This is a place of God's anger. Hell is not controlled and ruled by Satan. It's a place of the wrath of God. The anger of God. Where God punishes the wicked. God's anger has been restrained for thousands of years. Nobody has ever seen the full brunt of His anger except the Lord Jesus Christ on His cross. It's been restrained, bottled up, held back. But there's coming a day when the wrath of God and the anger of God will be poured out full strength. And Jesus refers to it here as destruction. What will it be like Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the death plagues released on Egypt, and most of all, the fury that was poured upon Christ at His cross. These are preludes of the final judgment. It's like acts in a play. Shadows pointing us to this terrifying, horrifying reality. Destruction will come. Upon the unbeliever. Upon the wicked. The broad path. It may seem to suit you well now. But Jesus is warning you. It ends in destruction. The destruction of body and soul. Where the fire does not die. And the worm is not quenched. The destruction of everything good. We live in a world that's upheld by the common grace of God and there's goodness all around us. The rain falls, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. But there's coming a day where that's going to be removed forever. Everything good will be destroyed. In this city there will be no love, no beauty, no faith, no hope, And the most terrifying for all, forever. Everything that is good will be destroyed by the wrath of God. Eternal destruction. Jesus tells us that many will find this to be their eternal destination. Again, these are clarifying, right? They're helpful. We're learning from Jesus. Hell is not just a place with five people in it, right? It's not just Hitler and you know uh, uh, five other notorious uh, criminals. Jesus says many, does He not? Many will go here. Many will find this to be their eternal destiny. But here's the problem. By that time, it's too late. And this is why Jesus is crying out, is it not? 
As the evangelist of all evangelists, Jesus is crying out to those on the broad way, enter the narrow gate. He's saying, come out of that stuff and have life. Come to me and be saved. He's announcing the gospel in this passage that there's an opportunity to turn. There's an opportunity to be saved. Any evangelist can tell you that they love you and they don't want you to go to hell. And if they're a Christian, that's true. They love you and they don't want you to go to hell. But Jesus is the evangelist of all evangelists. He can tell you what no one else can ever tell you. No one else has ever loved you like Jesus. So not only can Jesus say, I love you and I don't want you to go to hell. The one announcing these words died for sinners. He died for us. Nobody else can tell you that. I took your place. I died for you. I bled for your sins. You rebelled against me. You sinned against me from the moment you were born. But I died for you. This evangelist can tell you face to face. I will wash you of your sins in my own blood. Come to me. No one has ever loved like Christ loved. And he's calling us out of the path of darkness. Jesus wants you to be saved. Does he not? He says, enter the narrow gate. He doesn't say, stay out. You sin too much. He says, come in. Come in. Enter the narrow gate. There is unthinkable mercy wrapped up in this call to respond to the teaching of Jesus. He's basically saying this, you come through that gate, I'll fling the doors of heaven wide open. Kingdom is yours. You don't have to go to destruction. You don't have to live in this broad path that takes you to eternal destruction. You can come in. You can have me. I'll give you the kingdom. John chapter 6 verse 37 tells us that this, is, this offer is good. To anyone who takes Jesus up on this call. John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. In other words, if you hear his teaching this morning, if you hear that commandment of Christ and you say, I'm coming after him. I'm going through the narrow gate. And all that stuff about denying myself, I know it's going to be hard. But if I heard you right, you mean I get Christ you mean I get Jesus, the treasure of heaven? He says, if that's you, he'll never cast you out. Ever cast you out. Turn away from the road to destruction. And Jesus promises that your destination will be life forever. The narrow path is the Christian life. And the Christian life ends with eternal life. Everlasting glory. That means that whatever afflictions that we experience along the way, and they're different for different Christians, but whatever hardships that we endure along the way, that there's come in this moment where suddenly, all of a sudden, they're swallowed up by everlasting glory. Light momentary afflictions give way to the eternal weight of glory in the presence of God. And the best thing about heaven will be Jesus. 
The one whom our soul loves. The one whom all of heaven gathers around. And the created beings and the angels and the saints. And there's one gathered in the midst of the whole assembly. And and, and the cry goes out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. The best thing about heaven will be Jesus. There will come a day where every Christian will see by sight the ones that they the one that they saw by faith their whole Christian life. We're following him, we're seeing him by faith. Even that passage that we read this morning from Ryan, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love Jesus, and then that moment gives way to now I see him and I love him all the more. We see the one that our soul loves. This is the end of the narrow path. The plain sense of Jesus' words in these two verses are, are this. True Christianity is hard. False Christianity is easy. But only the narrow path leads to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the one preaching to us in these two verses is the one who trod the narrow path before us. This is the path that he walked, the path of righteousness. And he stands at the end and calls us to the finish line. Jesus is the gate. He's how we begin the Christian life. John 10, he says, I am the door. This is how you come in to the kingdom. Jesus is also the way. He's how we continue to live the Christian life. He's the vine, we're the branches. He is the way to the Father. And most glorious of all, Jesus is the prize. That at the end of this journey, this narrow path, this hard path, stands the Lord Jesus Christ. To see Christ, to be with Him, to enjoy Him forever, That's eternal life. Doesn't get any better than that. This is the blessing of all blessings. He will become our treasure. Life here is just just a, a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the life. The resurrection and the life. And the promise here is that soon and very soon we will see His face. So don't give up. Press forward, press on with Jesus, and gain the prize that can never be taken from you. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to you today. God, we ask again that you would rule us by your word. That you would even woo us by your word. That you would incline our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we pray that your word would bear fruit in your church today. In Jesus' name we pray.